Amen, amen. If you want to, you can uh, tap or turn your way, however you get there. We're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning, looking at uh, verses 21 through 38. So John 13, 21 through 38 is what our passage is this morning. And so you'll know if, if you've been here the last couple of years that when we do the Lord's Supper service, <clears throat> we have been journeying our way through the Gospel of John. And so we kind of take a break from our normal case of study, which is the Lord's, uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, sorry. And so that's why we're in John. If you were here last week, you're like, man, they just, they skip around a lot. Uh, not so much. But um, let me just remind you of some things that were happening in John chapter 13, because many of you have slept since the last time we went through this, and so you aren't going to remember, and so you'll fail the quiz at the end, okay? And so John chapter 13 opens up, and the most significant thing that happens up into verse 21 is this act of more or less kind of culturally scandalous service that Jesus engages in. And so this is what I'm talking about. Jesus has the disciples. They're gathered in the upper room, and so it's just the 13 of them cozily gathered in this room. And so we have uh, tables that are kind of formed in a U-shape, Jesus at the head table, the disciples laying with their head close to the table, their feet facing away, and so this is kind of the posture they're in. Jesus comes in there, and he begins to take off uh, elements of his attire, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash their feet. So you can imagine this deal. He's systematically moving around the room, washing their feet. Now, what he did was uh, culturally inappropriate. They had no category or box of understanding of what it would look like for their master, for their teacher, for their leader to serve them in this way. And so he's setting up, and he's always teaching them, he's always showing them what it looks like uh, for him to love them and what it looks like for them to receive his love. And so that's what he's gone through, and that's what he's done. Now he gets to the end of that section, and Jesus begins to tell them again that he'll be betrayed. Now the first time within the Gospel of John that he said this was in John chapter 6 and verse 70, when he said, did I not choose the 12 of you, and yet one of you will betray me? So he comes back to that again here. Look what he says. He says, the scripture is going to be fulfilled. I know whom I have chosen. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So he's quoting from the Psalms. And I tell you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. In essence, he's saying, look, I want you to understand that when I am eventually betrayed, it didn't catch me off guard. I was not surprised by it. It wasn't one of those deals of, oh, really, like this happened now. And when you reflect upon the certainty that I demonstrated over the course of my ministry, it's going to continue to add to the fact that he is not just a good man, but that he is the son of God, the risen savior. And so everything about what Jesus said, everything about what Jesus did finds ultimate fulfillment in understanding the disciples when he rises from the dead and they come to understand these things. So this is what's just taken place. So we get into our passage, verse 21. It says, after saying these things, listen to what John tells us about Jesus. He says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. What we are going to discover in verses 21 through 38 is the answer to two questions. Who do we love and how do we love? Who do we love and how do we love? And so in this, it's incredibly important for us to recognize how Jesus felt in this moment. So John gives us this indication. 
Jesus has just poured out his life for these men. He has served them in this really kind of base manner that made no sense to them, that they thought was completely inappropriate, completely contrary to everything they'd ever seen or experienced. And he knows that one of them is going to betray him. And he's telling them this. And so you can imagine that he's looking around the room and he sees the disciples one at a time. And, and just kind of the three years of their experiences together, the way they've laughed together, the way they've cried together, the way they've all been hungry and tired together. And he's looking at them and he's looking around this room and he is troubled. He's sad. He doesn't look around the room and say, look, one of you is going to betray me, but it's not a big deal because I'm going to overcome all these things and, it's just, and, and he's just going to be hated in history. Even the betrayer receives the love of Jesus. So when he looks around this room, he's not looking at men whom he's disappointed in, but he's looking at men in whom he has placed his love, men in whom he has entrusted his life. And he knows that he's about to be betrayed. He knows it. Imagine if you stood up in this room today and you look around and you begin to catch the eyes of the men and the women around you. And looking around the room, you knew the person that was going to betray you. You knew the person that was going to turn against you. You knew the person that was going to say things against you. Our tendency is to change the way we would interact with them. And we cut them off. We don't have any association with them in our lives. Why? Because we are isolating ourselves against the hurt that they would bring us. Who do we love? How do we love? Jesus, troubled in spirit, looks at the disciples and he says to them, I know that one of you will betray me. So the disciples now are the ones looking around and they're looking in their eyes and you imagine they're just kind of dressing one another up and down Conversation might have gone something like this as they kind of lean over. You're like, remember the time that Jesus called Peter Satan? I bet it's him. He's always doing crazy stuff. Jesus did say, Satan, get behind me. And he was only talking to Pete because we were all like back here and Peter was all up in his business. I'm not saying put money on it. I'm just saying it could be him. I don't know. Maybe. Don't, don't make eye contact. It just, it's just weird. It's just weird. But this is what we find. It says, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, and so we know this is John, He's, he's beside Jesus. He's laying beside Jesus. And Peter looks across this U-shape, and he begins to like kind of catch eyes with John, you know, doing this number, kind of whatever. <laughs> like I feel for John in this moment. No small number of you have mouthed things at me. I cannot read lips. <laughs> It's always really embarrassing. I'm just like, is he saying fly down? Is he, was he? Love you. I love you. Yeah. Love you too. That was weird. And so he's looking, and so he's trying to kind of compel John to ask him this. So John's just kind of there enjoying Jesus' presence, enjoying being with Jesus. So John just kind of rolls over. He just kind of rolls over, and so he's right beside Jesus, so he just kind of rolls over, and he looks up at Jesus, and he asks a simple question, who is it? Cutting right at the heart of who's the betrayer going to be, who is it? Now, something you're going to observe as we go through this passage is that one of two things is at play here. 
Either these men are especially dense, or God in some way is keeping them from observing and knowing who the betrayer is going to be. Either they're especially dense or something's at work because the conversations that are about to take place are such that you would think in your mind in a simple reading of this that there is zero chance they walked out of this room thinking, oh, could be anybody. I don't know. Look at this. They're in there. Catch this look. He asks the question, who is it? Jesus speaks. He says, it is whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. If I were to ask you to stand up in this room, to look around, to catch everybody's eyes, you know, to sit down, and I were to tell you that one of the people in this room is going to betray you, and, and Johnny says, who is it? And I say, it's the one who I, I'm going to take this lid off, I'm going to set it down, I'm going to get a cup out, I'm going to walk over, and it's the one whom I give the cup. What are you doing? You're watching every move I make. So I come close to Chase, and you're like, oh. <laughs> you know, I go around to Scott, and you're like, oh. And then I give it to Dee, and you're like, oh, I got that. <laughs> totally called that. And then I pick it up and give it to you, and you're like, no! <laughs> but for whatever reason, they don't get this. For whatever reason... They're not, they're not picking up on what's taking place. And this is why I say one of two things has to happen. Massive power surge, and everybody's like, oh, what did he do? What did he do? Who did he give it to? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's gone. Everybody's wiping breadcrumbs away, right? Nobody knows who he gives it to. And so I think what's likely happening here is God is, is keeping them from observing this. I think he's keeping them from observing this so he can have this moment with Judas. Now, what we read here in the text is just simple and it's plain. So what Jesus does, he dips the morsel and he gives it to Judas. But what he's doing, what he's demonstrating culturally is this special act of friendship and of love. So if I really want to honor somebody in the first century in this meal, what I would do is I would, as I would take this morsel, I'd either take bread or a piece of meat, and I would dip it in this common bowl, and then I would give it to them, showing them that I value their friendship, showing them that I love them. And all these things are being conveyed in this gracious extension of love to Judas. Now, we don't have a concept for this. So like if after today we go to lunch to celebrate my birthday and we're out there and we go to El Phoenix and, and there's some queso on the table and you roll up a tortilla and you dip it in there and you hand it out to me, what? Like I've got two hands. I can do this myself. This is weird. You eat it. But in the first century, none of them would have thought that. So what Jesus does is he demonstrates the care that he has for Judas. And in essence, when he does this, when he extends it out to Judas, this is what he's telling him. This does not have to be the decision you make. My love is being extended to you. My grace and forgiveness are coming for you. Would you receive what I extend to you? He knows Judas is going to betray him knowing he would be betrayed by him, how much does he demonstrate his love towards Judas? Who do we love? How do we love? 
of what we know is that Judas did not receive the love of Jesus. Jesus takes the morsel, and what we're told in verse 27 is that when he had taken it, Satan entered into him, and then Jesus, asserting his power and authority over the plans of the devil, says, what you do now, do quickly. Do not, for a moment, believe that Judas is putting one over on Jesus. Do not, for a moment, be confused and somehow believe that the schemes and plans of Satan are finally coming to fruition despite God's best efforts to stop it. It's quite simply not what is taking place. Jesus spoke these words back in John chapter 10 and verse 18. He says, no one, speaking of his life, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to take it up again. When Jesus, when Jesus speaks to Judas, he gives him instruction and he demonstrates power and authority even over the, the plans of Satan being executed by Judas. What you're going to do now, do it quickly. Now look, we get clued into the fact that everybody else is oblivious. No one at the table, verse 28, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. And then John begins to speculate and kind of bring back the historical significance when they talked about this at some point later. He said, some of us honestly thought because Judas is always the guy with the money that Jesus had told him to go out and buy some food for the feast. So when, when Judas gets up and he walks out of the room, we're like, yeah, that makes sense. I guess he's going to get food. And then, and then some of them, that what they suppose is that Jesus had told him to go out and to give something to the poor. It makes sense. He's the guy with the money. Jesus is always sending us on these random errands. Either we need food or the poor need something. Now, what does this give us an indication of? The other disciples never made the connection that Judas was the betrayer. Now, in each one of the gospel accounts that we read, every time you come across Judas's name, we're not given that same uh, bit of tension. Because why? It says Judas, the one who would betray him. But the disciples didn't have that. Jesus had faithfully demonstrated his love towards Judas, kept him in this inner circle, kept his love and mercy and grace, headed his direction, so much so the fact that none of the other men who had lived lives close to him ever knew anything was going on. They so quite simply didn't know. Verse 30, it says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And then John tells us, and it was night. And one of the things John has done from the beginning of his account in the gospel is use darkness and light, night and day. as a picture not just so we can know what is happening and what the setting looks like, but as a deeper setting of the internal spiritual character and nature of the things that are taking place. So you'll notice that most of the times where he uses night or darkness, something nefarious, something dark spiritually is afoot. And whenever he speaks of it being day and he talks of light, he's describing kind of God's movement and, and, and how these things are being brought to bear and how these things are being explored. So in this statement, when he says he went out and it was night, it is a statement, not just on the time of day, but it is a statement of the predicament that Judas has found himself gladly in. It is a dark time for Judas. So he goes out, and one of the things that's fascinating about this is the scene completely changes. 
There's a special teaching that Jesus had for the ones who remained faithful that Judas was not ready to hear and would never be ready to hear. So Judas leaves the room and Jesus turns to the disciples. He turns to them and he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We would think this is the point of the plot where things have really just, they're on the skids. Things have really gotten bad that everything's about to become unraveled for Jesus. The ministry he has built is, is, is falling apart. He's about to die. He's about to be beaten. He's, he's about to have everything stripped from him publicly. What is Jesus' outlook and his vantage point on it at this moment? Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is God glorified. The events, the complicity that Judas found himself in bringing to bear Jesus' death was a sign to the glory of God. Our God is glorified even, even when man tries to wrestle against him. Our God is, is glorified even when man denies him. Our God is glorified even what the disciples would point back and say, with the darkest times does not diminish his glory. It does not diminish what is rightfully his. Jesus says, even now, at once, you will be glorified. So Jesus looks at the disciples, and he wants to give them one more kind of window into what's about to happen. He wants to give them a window into understanding the things that are about to take place. And so he tells them, he tells them that where he's going, they can't seek him. So he says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so also now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Twice thus far in the Gospel of John, in 734 and in 821, what Jesus had told them is, look, you're going to look for me and you're not going to find me. Now, to the Jewish leadership, when he spoke to them, he told them it was because they were living in sin and that they would die in sin. And he's communicating something distinctly different to the disciples. And we know that because he doesn't tell them, he doesn't use this explainer and how he comes back to it with Peter. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, in the midst of this, in setting up, Jesus offers to them this distinctive teaching. Verse 34, he says, a new commandment I leave with you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, Leviticus 19, 18, and we see in Luke 10, 25 through 27, that Jesus has told them this kind of shining example of loving your neighbor as yourself. And here he turns and he offers a slight nuance to this, and he says, you are to love one another. And so he finds that he's kind of building in this, this understanding that they are distinctly different from those they are trying to reach. And so they are still to love their neighbor, they're to love those around them as they love themselves, but they are to love one another. And so then he goes on and he begins to describe it. And how are they to love one another? As they love themselves? No. They are to love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's what we find in this moment. Jesus, who, who just demonstrated what it is to serve someone in love, 
to do this kind of culturally inappropriate thing, this shocking thing, to have no regard and no sense of, of what status is or all these things, and to do this base level of service that, that rightly, culturally, he should not have done. But he gets there and he's all up in their feet and he's washing them and he's cleaning them and he's showing them his love for them in ways that is blowing their mind. And what he's told us over and over again is that he's headed towards the cross so that everything Jesus has done, the whole totality of his life has always been headed to the cross. So when he speaks to them and he says, love just as I have loved you, he's able to speak of it in terms of having already performed the sacrifice for their sins, even though it would not yet have happened. So Jesus in this moment, seeking to answer this question of who do we love and how do we love, we love the betrayer. We love the one that would completely turn his back on God, on us, and walk away. That would choose wealth or money or success or anything that he would set his heart or her heart upon other than God. We love them. And how do we love them? Furiously. Jesus loved to the point of pouring out his life for all of us. And you and I in this room are numbered among the betrayers. We are numbered among the sinners. We are numbered among those who have repeatedly turned our backs upon God and walk in the way that we have seen uh, to be right. The way that we have supposed to be supreme instead of following the way that he has laid us down to walk. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Then he tells us this particular thing. He says, by this will people know that you are my disciples. There are a terrific number of distinctives that are good and valuable for us to have. There are a terrific number of distinctives on top of this that we just kind of associationally take on. So one of our distinctives currently is that we don't have a home and we meet in a school, Right? So if somebody's going to describe our church, they'll be like, oh, that's the one that, that, you know, that place looks like a bomb went off. Yeah, they're, they're fixing it. They're working on it. It's going to be real nice. It's going to be real nice when it's done. But right now they meet in a school. They're the ones that their music is like this. Or, or, or they're the ones who, who their pastor says things that everybody goes, oh. Or they're the ones that, that it's like this. And, and, and they're the ones who do that. And so there are all these various distinctives of things and ways that people might describe us. How should we be known? This is what Jesus says. We will be known as the people who love like he did. This is the distinction for a Christian. It's not the white church. It's not the black church. It's not the multi-ethnic early bird church. It's not the coffee church. It's not the church in the city or the country that, that meets on the dirt floor that smells like horse poop. None of these things. None of these get to be our distinctive. Not a single one of them. They can be true and they could be right descriptors of us. But the, only ever, the only descriptor we should ever seek to have be the one that is kind of all-encompassing, and it is our DNA, and it flows out when we speak, and it flows out when we're in the city, and it flows out when I'm at Walmart, and it flows out when I'm at traffic, sometimes better than others, and it flows out in the home, in all the various ways that we are known in the community. This is what it should be, that we are known by our particular kind of love that we are a loving church. And we are a church who loves the betrayer. 
We're a church who loves the sinner. We're a church who loves the liar. We're a church who loves the thief. We're a church who loves the denier. Who do we love? We love those Jesus loved. How do we love? We love them sacrificially. Peter always wanted to interject himself into a story. Comes to Jesus in verse 36, and he says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, and he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow. Like I told everybody this. But because you asked again, but you'll follow afterward. Can't go where he's going. Jesus isn't pointing at his disappearance. He's not pointing at these things. He is pointing at his cross. The things I'm about to endure, you can't endure. The things I'm about to withstand, you can't withstand. It is not in your place. This is not a description of your lack of ability or talent. I was raised up for this point. I came for this mission. I will see it through. No one takes my life from me. The life I have, I lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter looks at what Jesus has said, and this is much like the, the, the time when Peter told Jesus, no, we can't go back there. They're going to seek to take your life. Peter misunderstands the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus was not to be long prolonged and to build up mass numbers. The mission of Jesus was to come and die, to take the penalty and the punishment for your sin and for my sin. And the ministry and the mission of Jesus was to die and be raised again so that we would not be stuck in our sin, but would be free to be forgiven and live life eternally with our Father in heaven. So Jesus asked him this question. Will you lay down your life for me? Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Who do we love? We love the Judas. The one who would betray. Who do we love? We love the fickle Peter who would rush headlong into a fight that he did not understand only to find himself denying. This is what Jesus shows us. He loves the betrayer and the denier. And to what degree does he love both of these men? To his death. His death on the cross. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves coming into a decision. Will we, those who are formerly betrayers, deniers, and disinterested, will we receive the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf? Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that we have to come to him broken. We have to have this sense in and of ourselves that we bring nothing of value to the equation. We bring liability and loss. And our liability and loss is met with his grace and forgiveness afforded us, not by some mysterious goodness held deep down within us, but found in his death, found in his blood and bestowed upon us because of the father's great love shown through the Son, sealed by the Spirit, and available to all. In the Lord's Supper, as the deacons are coming forward, 
in the Lord's Supper what we see in this. It's the sacrifice that he made for the betrayer, for the denier, and for us. And what we look forward to is the return of Jesus when he will rightly establish his rule and reign. As we take the Lord's Supper today, let us reflect upon the goodness of our great God. And let us reflect upon this question of who do we love and how do we love? Let me ask that as you receive both the bread and the cup that you would hold both together. When they are all passed out, I will serve the deacons and then we will take them together as we read from scripture. Let me pray for us as the band is making its way to the stage. God, I am overcome with this description of your love, that you love us, that you love us to the point of your death. In our sin, in our rebellion, in our disinterest, and in our doubt, you love us. So, Father, I pray for those who are struggling to receive that love, that you would open their hearts to receive your truth, that your Holy Spirit would move in their hearts concerning sin and righteousness, that they would be convicted and submit, that they would receive the gracious, all-encompassing love of Jesus through the shedding of his blood and through his resurrection. God, help us to focus on this. Who do we love? How do we love? In Christ's name, amen.